0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It was just after Christmas 1978 and a passenger jet crashed on its way from Denver to Portland. Ten people died, and how the pilots interacted was found to be a major factor. So the airline, United, made new investments in crew management and human factors, Today, we meet a 30-year pioneer in the field. Work that we're doing around mental
1: resilience and mental strength provides specific tools for our pilots to get your
0: head in the game. Also, a well-known voice retires. This is CPR News. I'm Joanne Allen. Later, for St. Patrick's Day, the surprising Colorado connection to this song.
2: Oh, Danny boy,
3: the pipes, the
2: pipes are calling.
3: I'm Lucy Wilmack, and I donated my camper van to CPR. We'd bought it when we were very young and very poor, but since then it had become a bit of a collector's item. And rather than go to the hard work of finding someone to buy it, we thought it would be better to donate it. I mean, when you're that attached to a vehicle, even though it's an inanimate object, you kind of just don't want to sell it to a random person. So donating to a resource that we depend greatly on helped a lot. It was easy to do at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. What happens when an airline pilot has a bad day? Maybe personal stuff, maybe a problem with the aircraft. It's not something you want to think about, but it's reassuring to know that someone is thinking about it.
3: Um, Hopefully everybody's feeling pretty welcome to United at this point.
0: At United's Flight Training Center in Denver, new pilots, first officers, are just nine days away from turning the wheel. That is, flying a United plane with passengers. And they're about to meet an aviation trailblazer, the guy whose job is to think about that question. What happens when a pilot has a bad day?
3: And so I'd like to start with someone who is your boss for the next two weeks, who Once upon a time was known for his successes and exploits in the boxing ring, but has taken that same level of commitment and excellence, and for two decades or more has brought that tier to United Airlines. And so without further ado, I'd like to introduce senior manager of Human Factors Pilot Development an extraordinary man, Rob Strickland. All right.
0: (laughs) Rob Strickland has had this Human Factors role at United for 30 years he helped write the cockpit checklist for the Boeing 777, the most prevalent wide-body jet. He's an Air Force Academy graduate, and as you heard there, a former boxer, which may explain his pep talk approach.
1: We're not just about flying equipment, that equipment you bid on from A to B. We fly what? We fly people, thank you very much. Not a trick question. We fly people from A to B. We fly their issues their problems, their emotional support animals, their solutions from A to B. Very soon you'll fly grandma to see your very first grandchild for the very first time.
0: But as head of human factors, it's not just passengers' humanity he recognizes, it's pilots too. If you've got
1: training issues, if you've got family
0: issues, personal issues, anything
1: between now and the time that you turn a wheel on IOE, I got your back.
0: IOE initial operating experience.
1: Let's talk personal. Anybody married? Cool. Not required, but it's cool. How about kids? Great. Got dogs? Those hands go up way faster than they do for the kids when I ask about the dogs. It's like, oh yeah, I got How about cats? Okay. <laughs> Those cat people just keep sneaking in. <laughs> under the radar, one of these days I'm going to go, cats, there's going to be no hands I'm going to know the hiring process is locked down. <laughs> okay, I'm kidding about that. Um, we hired you, we hired your significant others, we hired your kids, your dogs, <laughs> and we hired your cats. But my point is, while you're here pursuing what is quite possibly the greatest career opportunity for a pilot on the planet, your personal life doesn't come to a screeching halt, does it? It's still kind of going on in the background. For the most part, you're going to keep it just going on in the background. That's kind of what you do. But every once in a while, something of a personal nature that you didn't see coming, right? one of those sucker punches, you just didn't know about, you couldn't have planned for. That comes up, don't fight with it on your own. Come see me, I'll be your corner man. We'll talk about what's right for you, what's right for your family, what's right for United. We'll chop it up a little bit and then come up with a plan. And if necessary, we'll pull you out of training, let you go handle your business, and then we'll put you right back in so you can become a full up round here as a United Airlines first
0: officer. The story behind the human factor's role at United begins in tragedy, something Strickland and I discussed after his remarks to the fledgling pilots. Rob, I'm really glad to meet you. It's great to meet you, Ryan. I understand that for United, a watershed event occurred December 28, 1978, since the crash of Flight 173 to Portland, Oregon. Eight passengers died and two crew members Why was that a seminal event for the airline?
1: That was a seminal event because of what was ultimately determined as the causal factors. I mean, the airplane was perfectly flyable, but the crew was not. The crew had uh, some fixation on some things that weren't important at that time. Their ability to kind of think through it and uh, create a solution that, that was safe was considered at fault. The plane
0: ran out of fuel.
1: The the plane ran out of fuel, it did.
0: While the folks in the cockpit tried to figure out something that wasn't really wrong.
1: Yes, there was a perception that there was something wrong. There was a a gear light, and the captain had some previous experience with a, a gear light, and so he was super focused on that gear light to the point where he could not hear the crew members warning that, hey, we're about to run out of fuel, And that's a little bit more significant than the gear light. (laughs) It turned out the gear was down, but the light was at fault.
0: And we've all experienced that in a car, when it tells us something is wrong, but it actually isn't.
1: Oh, absolutely. And we can get fixated on that because it's something unusual. It's something that we're not used to seeing, and we want to fix it right away. And that was the mentality of this captain, despite encouragement from the crew to focus on the right things. Because that, um resulted in in the deaths of our customers our passengers we decided we got to do something about this so that's considered the birthplace the birth time of uh, crew resource management CRM
0: crew resource management and human factors that's in your title human factors what what is a human factor
1: okay so human factors deals with a broad array of things. It deals with the man-machine interface or the person-machine interface. Is it ergonomic? Is it it
0: logical? Yes,
1: that's exactly right. Is it comfortable? Does it take into account the limitations of a person physically, a person's cognitive ability, and uh, is it functional? Engineers like to um, design something that goes really fast and goes really high and really far, but can a person handle that? So human factors kind of comes in to the engineering process and goes, oh, pump your brakes. Perhaps this is not gonna be conducive to safe operations. It also deals with some of what we call the soft skills. How does a team work well together within this environment? You can see my blind spots, I can see yours, so that we can be more effective collectively than I would be individually.
0: It was interesting, when you were talking to the new first officers, You asked if they were married, if they had kids, if they had a dog, if they had cats. And you essentially encouraged them not to leave their personal lives totally behind and become some sort of automaton. And it got me thinking what it must mean if a pilot is going through a divorce. You know, if I slip up at work, Rob, I read something wrong on the radio, or I don't have a follow-up question. The stakes seem a lot higher if you're a first officer or a captain.
1: Absolutely. First officers and captains sign for the airplane. They sign for their crew. They also sign for the 162 people in the back of the airplane. And those people have gotten on with a level of trust that we just can't afford to violate. One of the things we ask our crew members to do at the beginning of every trip And we encourage them to do at the beginning of every training event is do a self-assessment, am I fit for duty? And we have a a checklist, a little card, that calls out the three major components of that fitness for duty. Do I have um, any threats in the environment? Do I have any threats with my equipment? Something that doesn't quite look right. And then um, the most recent addition is are there any personal threats? Are there any personal things that may be adding stress so that I come in with an already heightened level of adrenaline, a heightened level of uh, cognitive reduction? So I need to let my crew member know, my fellow uh, pilot know that, you know what, I may not be on my A game. I'm still good to go, but I may not be on my A game. So let's talk a little bit about how you can help me raise my uh, level of performance.
0: But that seems like a really scary thing to admit, Rob.
1: It is. And pilots are typically superheroes in their own minds. And quite frankly, our flying public has layered that expectation on our professional pilots that, hey, you're perfect. You don't make mistakes. So therefore, it's been really difficult to get pilots to admit that, you know what? I am a human. So I need to lean heavily on my crew members.
0: That's the crew resource management.
1: That's the crew resource management. So that maybe individually, I'm not excellent, but collectively, we can be. We, we can't afford to be anything less than that.
0: Now, something else you told that new class of first officers is, yes, you're junior. Yes, you're just starting your career with United. But if you see something is wrong is a miss, speak up. And that means that the 20 or 30 year captain needs to be able to listen to the whippersnapper.
1: (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. You know, one of the terms that um, we're starting to use more and more on the flight deck is psychological safety. And that is the feeling that I can um, be vulnerable as a um, individual, and take some social risks, bring in my opinion, and knowing that it's going to be honored. It may not necessarily be selected as the path forward, but it's honored. And the higher we can raise that level of psychological safety on the flight deck, and not just between the two pilots that are flying, but also the flight attendants that are in the back that add value to the conversation, the dispatchers on the ground, when they feel like You know, I may not have the right answer. There's no stupid questions. I feel comfortable in this environment that this 25-year captain has established on the flight deck so that I can bring my entire conversation, bring my whole self, all of my uh, opinions, and advocate in a safe environment, a psychologically
0: safe environment. My understanding is this is so important because there have been plane crashes associated with senior people not listening to junior people who actually had the right thing to say. Do you think that's true?
1: I, I think that's true. I think that those who are in charge, those who are in command, um, can kind of take off the cape and say, hey, listen, I don't have to have all the answers. I can still be in charge. I can still be in command and not
0: be right all the time. You've been a trailblazer in this field 30 years focused on human factors. What is a breakthrough moment that you had in understanding that interface between a pilot and the cockpit, Uh, an aha moment that you could tell us about in your career?
1: I would say the aha moment that I had and probably the most significant um, contribution was um, when I was involved in the, the 777 Flight deck of the future. The triple seven is a wide-body jet. It's a wide-body jet. It's my favorite, even though it's 25 years old now. I can't believe it's 25 years old. I'm dating myself, but I was able to be involved in the um, human factors aspect of how the checklists
0: were designed, so that they were more consumable by our pilot group. And so, when a triple seven is is fired up today. I know that's not the right term, Rob. The checklist that they use is still the checklist you helped develop? Uh, Yes, sir, it is. And give me an example of how you adapt a checklist to make it more human-friendly.
1: Well, the checklists are designed to um, create what we call a a narrow focus for flight crews. This is what you should be thinking about. This is why you should be thinking about it. And uh, eliminate as many of the questions a pilot may have about a particular non-normal scenario um, as possible, but then also leave just enough flexibility to recognize the fact that no non-normal situation is the same as the previous one, and there are always little nuances, and we count on the pilot's ability, the pilot's experience to just kind of bring it on home, baby, and make sure that they have done all the right things to safely land the jet.
0: There's a lot of stigma around mental illness. But at the same time, I sense that people are being more open about how they have struggled. What is the conversation like among airline pilots now?
1: I think there's um, a lot more openness around that conversation. And mind you, there's stigma associated with raising the question Mm. about mental health. The um, work that we're doing around mental resilience and mental strength provides specific tools for our pilots to get your head in the game. Can you give me an example? Um, for I example, want a
0: tool to get my head in the
1: game, okay. for free.
0: <laughs> for free? Without having uh, to pay for pilot school.
1: OK. All right, I think we can, I think we can arrange that. We have um, borrowed some breathing techniques from the uh, Navy SEALs. They use specific breathing techniques before they go into a firefight or while they're in a firefight. That helps them just recover, reduce the level of adrenaline, and focus on what they need to be focused on at any particular time. We call that metacognition, thinking about what you're thinking about at any given time and making sure it's the right thing. So we um, provide opportunities for our pilots to practice box breathing, you know, four-count breath in, hold for four counts, then a very measured four-count breath out, and then hold for four. Creating
0: a perfect square.
1: Creating a perfect square. And when you're thinking about, when you're holding your breath, guess what? You're pretty much thinking about your next breath. There's, you're not thinking about, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Oh, my God, I made a mistake. It's immediately centering. It's immediately centering, and it brings you into that present moment, which we all know that's the only place that high performance happens. It's in that present moment. Thanks for being with us.
0: Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you, Ryan. Rob Strickland, for more than 30 years, the Senior Manager of Human Factors and Pilot Development at United Airlines in Denver. And we'll be right back with another stalwart in her field. CPR says farewell to all things considered host Joanne Allen, who remembers listening to the radio under a blanket as a kid. This is Colorado Matters. COVID transmission rates, cases, and hospitalizations have dropped. The state's emergency hospital staffing guidelines and many mask restrictions have been lifted.
4: You kind of feel like there's hope for the future, like back to normal.
0: <laughs> but some are still cautious.
1: I don't think it's over at all. It's nice that we're able to do things like this, but it's also incredibly important to
0: stay really safe. How Coloradans feel about this new phase of the pandemic, read the story and see pictures at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And this week, CPR News says goodbye to our friend and colleague, Joanne Allen. She joined Colorado Public Radio on this very day seven years ago after time on New York, Philadelphia, and San Diego airwaves. And while she has announced her retirement, she's not really retiring. She'll be podcasting and writing. I'll chat with Joanne in just a bit, but she asked us to share the latest episode of her podcast, Been There, Done That, as she reflects on a career in journalism. She's joined by her friend and former colleague, Rachel Maddow, of MSNBC.
5: So tell me how are you feeling about this the, you know the state of journalism what journalists go through I mean just it's just so weird to me how things have devolved during my career but but what are you thinking?
4: I feel like I think about it in two different ways one kind of a business way and one kind of a civics way. And the business side I am more depressed about or more I don't know less hopeful about because, um, I live out in rural Western New England and, you know, the biggest town around here is like 25,000 people and seeing the struggle of local journalism, which is, you know, the root of all journalism, things happen, things have to happen in a specific place all the time. And not everything happens in capitals, you know, in, in state and national capitals, Seeing the struggles, the business struggles at the local level, both in terms of TV journalism and print journalism in particular, that feels not just threatening in terms of our journalistic lifeblood. It feels like that erosion has already happened and the dune has fallen down into the sea. Like it just feels irreparable in some ways. And it feels like it's already gone for a lot of places. That I'm very worried about. The civic side of it, I am sort of more bullish than I've been in a long time just because I think, you know, in a time of of scandal and rising authoritarianism and anti-democratic political movements and all this stuff that journalists have been the heroes and journalism has been what saved us so far. And even at the local level, those things that I'm so worried about in terms of how things are going in local journalism, the impulse to save it and to try to come up with something and to innovate and to try to find a way to keep journalism going and to keep reporters knocking on doors. I think that Americans get how important journalism is. And I think journalists are living up to it. It's just a question of whether the business model can sustain it so that it can be full-time professional work. So you sound hopeful. I am. I'm worried but also encouraged by some of the other stuff I'm seeing. In a lot of places where it's succeeding, it's succeeding essentially as philanthropy, or it's not succeeding, surviving. When you have local communities served by professional, good, well-run papers with professional standards these days, it's often a philanthropic enterprise. It's not a going business concern. And that, you know, the instinct to do that philanthropically is great, but that's hard to sustain. Yeah.
5: And with so many Wall Streeters taking over, um, what are they called? They're called hedge funds, hedge mm-hmm. funds taking over uh, local media. And the, the purpose is to make money, period. The end. I'm in. No more. We don't we don't really yeah. care what's going on. You know, that's it's all sort of reminds me of um, I don't I'm not in the habit of <laughs> quoting comedians, but the comedian Dimitri Martin said that his definition of news is bad things. And the definition of local news is bad things near you.
4: (laughs) (laughs) You'd think just in in that in that construct, you'd think just in evolutionary terms, we would take care to make sure that somebody could tell us about bad things near us as a matter of priority. (laughs) Yeah,
5: yeah. Well, you know, I have been mostly at local stations, uh, NPR stations around the country, so I deal mainly with local and state news and occasionally national news. Seldom do I have to deal at all with political news, but sometimes when I see your broadcast or I see folks who are on the national level doing shows, I just am like, how do you deal with it? I mean, how do you keep your sanity (laughs) When so much craziness is going on, how do you, how do you stand
4: it? Well, I mean, I I think part of it is when it's your job, you naturally compartmentalize. At least I do. Like right now I'm on a hiatus from my show, which is great because I'm working on some other stuff that isn't the daily show. And I'm actually working just as hard as ever, but I'm not doing that daily production thing. And Because of that, I'm just reading the news as a consumer, not reading the news and scouring the news and reporting the news and trying to make the news in order to get a TV show on the air every day. And I'm finding myself as a news consumer, as a sort of more normal news consumer, much more wound up and much more emotionally invested in what's going on in the news. When it's your job, you know, you just, it's work, you get through it, and then it's done at the end of the day. And I think it's it's easier to stay at a, a, a little bit of a remove- also think part of it, in terms of national politics, it's just as helpful to know what to cover, to be able to sort of see around corners and know what's going to be important and what's going to be relevant, just as important to know what to cover as it is to know what not to cover. And I feel like national news, national political news right now is full of so much performative PR stunt nonsense, where people are doing things, particularly in social media, even high elected officials, doing things in social media, doing things for the benefit of the media that have no content except to generate outrage and therefore get attention. And I know that's nothing new, but it's it's much easier for a lot of them to do it and to do it to some effect, um, given the direct access to social media. And that stuff, I just try to not cover. I mean, I We sort of have an internal mantra on my show a few different ones, but one of them is that we don't play requests. Like, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. There's nothing, there's nothing you can do to make me cover you. You know what I mean? Like be important and die. Maybe I'll do your own bit. But. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, if you're, if you are doing something specifically to get people in the news talking about you, I am not interested. And that I think being able to kind of fence off stuff like that so that you don't have your chain jerked constantly, that that helps, I think, a little bit with sanity and um, sort of keeping things on your own terms.
5: So I guess your advice to young people would be stick to it, do it, do your best, get in there and make sure that the reporting is honest and fair and balanced, et cetera, et cetera.
4: I think a version of that, yeah. I mean, what's, I I, I find it, um, I have always found it helpful to make sure that I am not being too collaborative in my work. And I know that, that sounds wrong, but um, I think it's important to be original and to make sure you're doing your own thinking. And so, you know, don't spend too much time cooking up whatever it is you're working on with other people who have the same remit as you. You know, if everybody else is, is jumping off a cliff, you know, go around it, go down the other side, measure it and report on it. Don't jump too. <laughs> um, there is a certain, I think if, if I don't know exactly know how to say it and I'm not, and I'm, I'm trying not to give too much advice, but there is something about knowing who you are, having confidence in your own instincts and telling the story the way you believe it ought to be told, independent of how everybody else is telling it. There is something to that that I think moves the ball down the field in a way that you don't get unless you have the freedom to sort of be yourself and be original.
5: Getting away from the uh, the arena of politics, uh, another thing that is kind of tough to do these days is report on the news that has to do with disasters. And mm. um, we here in the Denver area, the Boulder Fire, which claimed over a thousand structures. And when yeah. I was on the air and that was happening and we were getting reports in, I just remember feeling just awful about it. Almost, I, I almost started crying at one point and my mm-hmm. engineer had to stop and ask me, are you okay? And I said, yeah, but
4: it was, it was overwhelming. Did you find that happened to you ever? Almost, almost every day. I will say, I mean, I talk a good game about compartmentalizing and not getting too wound up in the news, but I am a real crier. Um, And I cry at sad news, but I also cry at inspiring news. And so it is one of my weaknesses as a news broadcaster that I can't, there's a lot of copy even that I write that I can't make it through comfortably. And you know, it's, it has happened a, f- a few times on the air where it's noticeable. I think longtime sort of viewers of my MSNBC show have seen me tear up. You know, the bunch, people who sort of know what to watch for. But I have to do like physical tricks to stop myself from doing it. And it's literally almost every almost every night that I'm on the air. Um, I'm not proud of it. It's not like I've got some. You know, it's, it's I don't see it as an asset. It's definitely a, a personal weakness. But I. It's a sort of occupational hazard. When you found yourself feeling teary during that coverage, was that a really novel thing for you? Does that usually stuff like that usually not happen to you?
5: Uh, Getting that emotional, no. I mean, I sort of Mm -hmm. attribute it to being older, too, because Mm -hmm. I think the, the more you age, the more you're willing to cry and let your feelings be out there. But I was brought up where you just are stoic when you're doing journalism. You do not show any emotion whatsoever. And it's creeping in more and more for me, in part because I am older, and also because there is more sad news that we end up reporting on. Now, My station is trying to get away from that. We're trying to figure out ways of not just doing the sad stuff, but to also bring joyous stuff. And if you're going to cry about something like like you're saying, have it be something that's inspirational, something that's wonderful, something that's good.
6: Mm -hmm.
0: My colleague Joanne Allen with MSNBC's Rachel Maddow, reflecting on journalism today. Still to come, how Joanne got started in radio and what's next for her. I'm Ryan Warner, here with Colorado Matters, from CPR News and KRCC.
6: It's a clear blue semi-precious stone, reminiscent of the seawater for which it's named. Aquamarine has long been associated with the sea. The Greeks and Romans believed it has the power to calm waves and keep sailors safe. Pliny the Elder said the gem seemed to have come from a mermaid's treasure chest. Yet America's biggest source of aquamarine is nowhere near the ocean. Mount Entero, the tenth highest peak in Colorado, has a rich gem field near the summit, popular with rock hounds. One discovered the biggest aquamarine ever found in North America, a specimen measuring about two feet by three. The March birthstone has also been found at Mounts White, Baldwin and Princeton. And in 1971, Aquamarine became the official state gem of Colorado. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Coble & Company. It's
0: bittersweet for me to say that Joanne Allen retires from Colorado Public Radio this week. And in lieu of some big retrospective, Joanne asked us to share some of what has fueled her when she's not hosting All Things Considered. So more now from her podcast, Been There, Done That the episode featuring her friend and former colleague Rachel Maddow of MSNBC.
4: Do you remember the first time you read news copy?
5: Well, I started off in newspapers. So Mm -hmm. I was on my high school newspaper and I was the editor of my college paper and then I got a job uh, full time after I graduated in 1975, when you were just a mere pup <laughs> um, <laughs> um, at the Capital Times newspaper in Madison. And I did that for a couple of years. And then one of the founding producers of All Things Considered at NPR was coming back to Madison to start a news department. And I had been dispatched to interview him. And then at the end of the interview, he asked me to work for him. So I had not, <laughs> it was great. I mean, I had done a little bit of radio, but I hadn't done a newscast the way, really, really news. And so that was my first experience. And yet when I got behind the mic as someone who was getting paid to be behind the mic, mm-hmm. I really loved it. I mean, I mm-hmm. I just, I, obviously I did. I, I'm, I've been sticking with it. i can't do TV because I'm deathly afraid of cameras, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) but so I've always just loved radio and yeah, I, and podcasting, thank the universe for podcasting Mm. because now I get to continue doing audio, which is, is my favorite.
4: I can just imagine that news executive, sitting there being interviewed by you and thinking this is a woman who is a pro who is trained who is experienced who is doing a proper interview with me and listen to that voice how am i going to get this woman into my <laughs> public radio i can just imagine i'm i'm imagining what it was like while, while that person was thinking about asking you to come work for that new enterprise because you've got you have the magic voice joanne and for you to be in print and for that person to to be creating an audio news environment and encountering you—that must have just been. I mean, I don't know if that guy played the guitar at the crossroads that morning or whatever, but that must have been quite a day. <laughs> well, <laughs> what a I, hire! What an what an encounter! You know,
5: I know, and and I love that story. And I, I he's still alive, and I you know I contacted him a few times to thank him again for for moving me into radio because mm-hmm. I I don't know if I would have taken that leap. Um, I might have further down the road, but he was the one who really got me started in radio. Yeah. So that's that's
4: magnificent. That's fantastic.
5: Yeah. In addition, I was in a play in college and I'm definitely not an, an actor, um, but <laughs> I had a soliloquy in some Greek thing. And at the end of the of the rehearsal, the director, the professor director at the back of the hall, the lights were all low and she just yelled at me. You should do something with that voice, I was <laughs> <I'm> like okay <laughs> if you if you insist, and so then came Jack Mitchell from n p r who was starting the new uh so all of that came to my head when he said that, and I thought, yeah. well, let me think about it, and I'll get back to you and like two weeks later, I was working for him so are you gonna are you gonna write books too? I am who doesn't when they're a journalist? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <and they
5: retire. laughs> I'm gonna do the you know the the usual thing of, of writing uh I think I'm gonna start with a memoir Good.
6: um
5: and tell my tell some stories of growing up and so forth and also relaying them or relating them to to being older in life mm-hmm. um, but I'm definitely. The podcasting, honey, I I love every aspect of podcasting. I was telling somebody this the other day. I just love it. Even if it's four o'clock in the morning and it's the quietest in my apartment and that's when I can record the intro. I'm mm-hmm. happy to, to set the alarm and get up at four and do it. I, I, I love editing. I, I just every aspect of it. I love contacting yeah. people to see if they'll talk to me. You know, mm-hmm. it's
0: just uh, I'm just so I feel so grateful. And we are grateful to Joanne, heard there with her friend and former colleague Rachel Maddow of MSNBC. I had just a few lingering questions for Joanne before we bade her farewell. Joanne, thanks for chatting with me. Absolutely, Ryan. Hi. Hi. There's this moment in your conversation with Rachel Maddow where she talks about the importance of knowing who you are and having confidence in your instincts That was advice to young people. Do you know who you are? And are you confident in your instincts after uh, this illustrious career?
5: I I think I can say yes, I, I do know who I am. And I have more confidence now than I've ever had in my entire life. And that is the result of just experiencing so much. And feeling and understanding that each and every person has a place in the world. So as I've gotten into my older years, I've recognized what my place has been and also what my place will be going forward. So, yeah, confidence, definitely the most confident I've ever been, and I know myself better than I ever have.
0: Oh, I'm pleased to hear it. Uh, And it sounds like the future will involve podcasts. It's a love affair, I think.
5: Oh, yeah. You know what it's like to be in front of the mic or behind the mic, however you say it. I don't want to say it's an addiction because that carries a negative connotation, but there is definitely something wonderful about being able to express yourself on a mic and have people hear what you have to say and also to convey stuff that they may not already know, which is what we do as radio audio journalists. So I'm, I'm very thrilled that I am not just totally hanging up my microphone, that I will still be using it to communicate. And if it weren't for podcasting, maybe I would stay in radio a little bit longer. Hmm. But I am, I'm really, really looking forward to the challenges that lie ahead. Because once you've really done something for decades on end, yeah, it's time to move on and try some new stuff.
0: So will the vehicle for that be Been There, Done That, or do you imagine inventing some new podcasts?
5: I think I'm probably going to invent something uh, to go along with Been There, Done That. I'm in my third season on, on the show, and I still feel as though there are many, many more stories to tell that are of the baby boom generation. But I think I want to podcast in another way. And I don't know exactly what it is yet. I just know I want to continue communicating via podcasting because it
0: is such an easy medium. Before we go, you mentioned writing your memoir. Um, is there a, a story that you know you will include? And might we get a highlight?
5: Yeah, I think it will be how I first really discovered that I love radio. When I was a kid, I used to lie in bed and you know, couldn't always go to sleep because your parents would make you go to bed way too early. But my dad had this Zenith radio that when he was done with it, it was a transistor. He got a new radio and he gave his old radio to me. And so at night, I would get in bed, pull the covers over my head, and turn my radio on, thinking the covers protected the sound that no one could really hear (laughs) (laughs) what was going on, (laughs) that my parents wouldn't hear me on the radio, you know, listening to the radio. And I would pull in voices. I, I grew up in Mobile, Alabama, and voices from New Orleans and Atlanta and Birmingham, and on occasion all the way from Chicago, WLS. And I would hear these people on the radio and playing music and talking, and it just sent me into a world I knew I would end up somehow, some way, someday in radio because I just loved the way that the person on the radio communicated with me. I felt like they were talking just
0: to me. I wonder if there are little girls who've listened to you like that.
5: Oh, I hope so.
0: Joanne, thank you so much for being with us and best of luck in the next chapter.
5: Thank you, Ryan. Um, I'll be seeing you, dude. You know
0: it. I hope so. Joanne Allen signs off from CPR Friday on All Things Considered. This is Colorado Matters.
3: Colorado Public Radio is proud to sponsor TEDx Mile High, presenting Colorado's thinkers and doers sharing life changing ideas on the theme Ascend. Explore big ideas taking flight across science, technology, the arts, education, business, April 30th at the Newman Center for the Performing Arts at the University of Denver. Tickets available now at TEDxMileHigh.com.
0: It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.
2: Oh, Danny Boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling. From glen to glen, and down the mountainside. On St. Patrick's
0: Day, we can be sure the pipes, the pipes are calling. Danny Boy is a quintessentially Irish song. Yet historian Andrew Gulliford says the melody is connected as much to Uray, Colorado, as to the Emerald Isle. And Andrew, welcome back to the show.
3: Glad to be here. Thank you.
0: This story involves a woman who lived in a ramshackle mine and a name scratched in a doorway. Uh, First off, how did you get started on this Danny Boy historical journey?
3: I can't really remember where it started in terms of the connection, but what I had to do as a historian was prove that Edward Weatherly and then his wife had actually been at this mine in Uray and then track down the story all the way back to London. And so trying to find the copyright for the song Danny Boy. And one of the interesting things that developed was that it was written by an Englishman, even though it is certainly considered to be a quintessential Irish tune.
0: All sorts of discoveries on this trek. So we're talking about Margaret Weatherly, correct?
3: Yes. Margaret Weatherly was the Irish wife of Edward Weatherly. And Edward Weatherly came to URA and got into mining, was very interested in silver, railed against the gold standard, wrote for the URA Times, and tried to develop this mine, Neosho. What I was interested in was the actual history connecting the song Danny Boy to the Weatherly family.
0: Yeah, so Margaret Weatherly lives in this remote mountain town with her husband far removed from any cultural centers. I'll note she's not a musician, uh, or at least not classically trained. Uh, How was she integral to a musical mashup that leads to one of the most recognizable songs in modern
3: times? Well, Edward Weatherly's brother stays in London, becomes a barrister, an attorney, does well, uh, starts writing poetry, starts writing other things, and then is struck by this horrible double tragedy in which he loses his father and his son within about three months. So he writes this poem and sends the poem to his brother who shares it with his wife. And somewhere along the line, someone says, well, can you put this to music? And here's where the wife comes in. She felt that there was a tune that would work and the tune that she matched to the words was actually hundreds of years old and is an Irish folk tune that was probably played by blind harp players uh, around the streets of Dublin. And because Margaret's father had been an itinerant railroad worker and many of the railroad workers in America were Irish, he had taught her songs and tunes. And so she matched this tune to those words and thus Danny Boy was born, copywritten in 1913.
0: And this tune, which makes Danny Boy Irish, by the way, is Dairy Air.
3: Yes, yes. And apparently uh, other scholars have said that folks had been trying for years to come up with words to match that, and that Margaret did it. <laughs> ¶¶
0: Okay, more about how the tune of Derriere is lended to Danny Boy. But the first question you raised was really trying to find solid evidence that the Weatherleys had been, and Margaret in particular, uh, had been in the area and uh, at this mine. And, And that's where this name scratched in a doorway comes in,
3: right? Absolutely. So I went up to the mine. It's kind of an interesting route to get to it. I went with the archaeologist and her house had been destroyed. So we knew that, you know, we wouldn't find anything of the Weatherleys. no private possessions of any sort. But we were at the bunkhouse and looking around and I happened to uh, look in the doorway. And here she had penciled her name and the date in 1924. And so that was the historical link that linked the family to the mine and then basically the mine to the story. And what happens is the brother never acknowledges the role of his sister-in-law, never says that she had provided the music, but sort of, I guess, out of uh, some sense of guilt, continues to help Edward Weatherly by funding the mine, by providing him British pounds, which he spends on dynamite and workers for a silver mine that is never going to pay off. So there's a double tragedy. There's the tragedy of Danny Boy in the song, which is really about losing a father and a son. And then the tragedy of investing in a mine high up on a ridge in Colorado, that's never going to pay off.
0: Well, and then the third tragedy, which you've hinted at there, which is that Margaret Weatherly really never gets credit for putting music to Danny boy or the right music
3: correct there's a, a great grandson now who's written a book about Danny boy who's trying to sort of correct that and give margaret the credit she deserves
0: Danny boy became an instant hit after it was published in 1913 it became the quintessential dirge for soldiers who died in world wars 1 and 2 were you able to determine like if margaret ever sang her song around Uray, or if she ever heard it performed and, and said, That's my song.
3: I'm not sure she ever heard it performed, but I'm sure that it was. All of the Colorado mining camps had a strong saloon culture, and the Irish were right there with the Germans and the Northern Italians. So I'm sure it was played in Uray. I'm not sure what saloon, but I think this is really important to history that this is a world famous song. And the story of that mine and that this couple and the couple's marriage ends in tragedy when the husband dies in the Great Depression. Margaret loses her sanity and is attended to by the citizens of Uray, but eventually goes to the state insane hospital in Pueblo and dies there. Oh. And then the books, the archives from the family is at the University of Colorado Boulder, And I was never able to get to those boxes. I'm not sure what's in there. I'm sure a lot of writings from Murray, and then the husband's obituary that ran in the Durango Herald. So there's plenty of tragedy all around.
0: Sounds like a dare for a graduate student in history to me, Andrew. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Good idea. You know, to just highlight how exceptional Margaret Weatherly is. Over the years, others had tried to put lyrics to derriere. They were like, not great. Failed. Would God I were the tender apple blossom. Oh, shrive me, Father, haste, haste, and shrive me. Shrive, uh, apparently meaning absolve me, give me penance. Uh, Evidently, no one thought of Fred Weatherly's The Pipes Are Calling, except for Margaret up in her Lonely Miner's Cabin. Uh, this song has been covered by everyone from Roy Orbison to Elvis Presley to the Muppets.
2: Oh, Danny boy. Oh, Danny boy. Oh, Danny boy. Oh, Danny boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. oh Danny.
0: <laughs> Is there a version that you like, Andrew?
3: I, there's many versions of the song, but there's a story I'd like to add. Yeah, and that is, and that is I did have an Irish uncle, uh, who was my Uncle Sam. We all have the Uncle Sam, but I really had an Uncle Sam, <laughs> and uh, he was in the military. When he passed away, those of us who were pallbearers were asked to come and uh, make sure the funeral was well attended. But then we had to have a wake. He was Irish. And so he had a specific cassette full of music that we were supposed to play, including, of course, Danny Boy, and then two bottles of whiskey. Uh, One was Scotch whiskey and the other was Irish whiskey. And the rules of the wake were very specific. Those men of us who had been pallbearers had to put our arms around each other, stand up in my Uncle Sam's living room, and not sit down until we had finished both bottles of whiskey. And by that time, We'd heard Danny Boy several times. We were crying. It was a memorable, memorable wake.
0: And a testament to just how integral this song has become, a song I didn't know until now, Andrew Gulliford, that has Colorado connections. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. From glen to glen and down the mountain The summer's gone And all
0: the rose is Andrew Gullifer teaches history at Fort Lewis College in Durango. He's delved into the western Colorado connection to Danny Boy, performed here once again by Colorado's Face Vocal Band. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to colleagues whose smiling faces I love to see. Carl Bielek. Oh, Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer.
4: Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher.
0: Nathan Heffel. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes.
4: Carla Jimenez.
0: Pedro Lumbrano.
4: Patrice Mondragon.
0: Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Nancy Lofholm. You're with CPR News and KRCC.
2: Oh, Danny Boy. Oh, Danny Boy. I love you so